0: See Scripture, Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Painted Door. My name is Mark. If you're new, happy Father's Day to all of you. Not sure how you all are all planning to mark the day, but as for me and my family, as for me and my house, we will serve the White Sox. Uh, And so we are heading to a White Sox game. Um, I know what you're all thinking, you poor, miserable lot. Uh, But we bought tickets to this game, of course, several weeks ago, long before the announced 100-degree temperatures that were planned. And so I am anticipating readying myself for a full afternoon of sweat, And I thought it would be appropriate actually to just give the whole day to sweat and begin right now. And so we are diving into politics this morning. You're welcome, church. You will all be joining me in the great sweat as we enter into the conversation around political engagement. That's not something we do very often, but as you should know, if you've been around, we are using our summer, using the summer months here at the Painted Door to dive headlong into those most controversial social topics of our time, specifically looking at those things that divide us, those things that divide people. We're calling this series Dividing Walls and the Christ Who Makes Peace. And so today we are diving into that very divisive issue of political engagement, how it is that we engage in the political conversations of our time, and there's really probably no more divisive issue in the church than politics. If you've been around the painted door, you might have noticed that we tend to shy away from explicit political conversation here in our church, and we have mixed motives for that. Certainly, uh, fear is one of the governing motives. It's Terrifying to think about entering into conversations that would produce relational tension in and among the community of faith that you intend to spend an enormous amount of time with. You'd rather not go into those hardest conversations, keep the peace, keep things smooth. That feels safer. Certainly, the motive of fear is at play, but also underlying. Probably the reason why we don't dive into these issues explicitly that often is that we don't want to drive wedges between people. We want to be a church where people of varying persuasions can feel welcome, can feel as though they belong, and so we resist entering into those places that drive people apart. Now, not all churches approach politics in the way that ours typically does. Probably many of you know that there are lots of churches that speak explicitly, regularly to the political conversations of our time, and even call their congregations to activity regarding current political events. What tends to happen in congregations where that is the case is that over time, the congregation becomes quite monolithic in its political ideology. That is, most of the people in a given congregation start to believe similar things politically. And that is simply quite human because it is so difficult to live in close proximity, to live in real friendship with people that you are routinely disagreeing with and disagreeing with about fundamentally important things in the way that we structure our society. And so over time, in churches that engage more politically, you wind up with a bit of a monolith. And then what starts to happen, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, is that ministers feel emboldened to begin to cite the scriptures as the basis for some particular political ideology or position begin to make a case from the scriptures that Christians need to pursue a particular ideology or need to take a particular position, and there's really nothing more divisive than that. If you happen to be a person here this morning that leans more conservative in your political persuasion and have ever tried to be a part of a more liberal, activistic church— it's likely that you didn't last all that long. In same way, the other way, if you happen to be a person who leans more liberal in your political persuasion and have ever been tried to be a part of a conservative activist church, it's likely that you were not able to hang in there that long. Because as ministers begin to make a case, a biblical case, for a particular political ideology, that drives people who disagree out of the congregation? How can you sit under the teaching of someone who is insisting that a particular political approach has biblical warrant behind it when you are convinced that that is in fact not the case, perhaps even convinced in the opposite direction? I would hazard to say that, and this is rather hazardous, that when ministers seek to make a claim that there is direct biblical warrant for any specific political ideology or position, it is always a form of spiritual bullying. In fact, what the reality is, (laughs) somebody's with me, others still unsure. (laughs) Uh, The reality is, is that no matter your political ideology, no matter what positions you land on, you can rest assured that the Bible does not have your back. The Bible remains silent on so much more than we think. The Bible does not speak to specific political ideology. The Bible gives us many instructions for how we're to order our lives, our personal lives, the lives of our families, how we're to organize our churches. But the Bible does not give us a clear blueprint for how a government is to be established, how a government is to be run. There are clear instructions in the Old Testament for how one particular ancient nation, the nation of Israel, was to be established, set up, and run. But there is nowhere in the scripture that it indicates that that is a pattern for other nations to follow. In fact, those directions to the nation of Israel are descriptive, not prescriptive. And we are not to take those descriptive admonishments for how to set up a government and society and apply them to our modern social context, our modern national context. And so... The scripture, of course, gives us no clear indication for how much a government is meant to tax its people, for example. It gives us no indication as to whether we should set up a government so that we elect our leaders or have some other way of appointing our leaders, succession perhaps, or some other test in place. It gives us no clear instruction for foreign policy, it gives us no clear instruction for immigration. It gives us so very little on these divisive political issues of our time. It gives us zoomed out general principles, perhaps, but does not give us a blueprint for how to enact those principles in a particular Society, And so when ministers make the mistake of believing that they have biblical warrant for a particular political ideology or position, they wind up bullying their people. And, of course, it's not only ministers who are guilty of this. Just this week, if you've been following the news at all, I think God set it up this way. He wanted us to be particularly relevant, and so he inspired the folly that was... The words coming out of our own Attorney General Jeff Sessions' mouth this week when he cited Romans chapter 13, wherein the Apostle Paul is instructing Christians to be law-abiding people, to be people who generally subject themselves to the governing authorities of their time and are not lawless people. Sessions cited this instruction from the Apostle Paul as a warrant for a particular and specific immigration policy of our time. The problem, of course, with that is that Romans 13 is completely silent on the issue at hand, completely silent on the particular immigration policy being considered. The issue at hand is whether that policy is good or not, whether it should be changed or not. It is actually a favorite practice of oppressors and tyrants to cite the Apostle Paul's instruction to obey governing authorities when trying to insist on some controversial law that deserves the conversation of the people and the dissent of the people. It's that conversation, it's that dissent where we determine as a society whether something is fitting for our given time and place. It is not scriptural bullying that seeks to silence people, that will lead us into, of course, the best policies for our time. The Bible does not have Jeff Sessions' back, and if you oppose Sessions, and if you oppose this particular immigration policy from the Trump administration, the Bible doesn't have your back either. Okay, We're going somewhat blind here, seeking to apply general principles and work it out in the particular context in which we live. That's the political conversation that's so necessary in every society, and the Bible does not speak to that conversation directly. You cannot employ it on your side to beat up those whom you oppose. It doesn't have your back. So, as we dive into the conversation of political engagement today, let me say at the outset, I want you to know at the outset that we have no intention of moving our church toward a particular political ideology or toward a particular political position. There are people in this church, people of good conscience, Christian people in this church, who hold to positions that lean right, hold to positions that lean left, hold to positions in between. And there are good Christian arguments to be made for all of those things, And people hold those positions according to conscience. And we would like very much for that to always be the case in our church. We would like very much for those disagreements, those differing viewpoints about the political positions of our time to be present in our church and actually to be engaged in our church. We would like for people to engage with one another, to learn how to engage with one another, something that our society has forgotten seemingly, mistaking all too easily any disagreement for hate when in fact it need not be. Disagreement is rich and fertile soil for learning, for discovering truth, for relationship. Disagreement is good. Okay? And the best kind of politics, the best kind of politics is actually not about Defeating opponents, contrary to what our present moment seems to indicate. The best kind of politics is not about defeating those people over there, but rather about living in tension with them. Living in tension with them. That's the best kind of politics. This is why quoting the Bible to suggest divine warrant for some specific policy is so dangerous. Because that is an attempt to silence dissent. That's an attempt to be rid of tension. That's an attempt to win, to bully, to dominate, to spiritually abuse even that's the worst kind of politics. Mark Twain, <clears throat> one of my favorite childhood authors, still a favorite, once wrote, Politicians and diapers must be changed often and for the same reason. He had a, <laughs> he had a way with words. Well, why, why would he say that? Well, of course, because most politicians are full of it, right? And that is because most politicians, I shouldn't say all, but most politicians are just trying to win. When you are simply trying to win, you ha- never have any reason to hear or acknowledge truth that may be coming out of the mouths of your opponents. You never have any reason to hear or acknowledge lies that may be coming out of the mouths of your allies. You've given yourself over to a political expediency. You're simply trying to score points, trying to rally your own base, the only way to win in politics is to convince everyone that your opponents are nuts, that your opponents have nothing to offer, that they should be silenced, that they should be diminished, that they should cease to exist, and you wind up pretending that any given issue is open and shut. You pretend that an issue is obvious. You pretend that everyone should be able to see what you can see and that people lining up on the opposite side of you have nothing to offer. That is never the case. That is never the case. You can think of the most extreme possible example in the history of politics in this world, and our minds go to those extreme examples quite quickly. Even the most extreme political ideologies have something in them that is worth hearing. That requires an enormous amount of discernment and care in order to do that. It makes the world complex and nuanced. It makes the world scary, in fact. Not black and white. Not simple. Not moralized. Personalized. Human. Divine. Every political conversation, every political debate is always complex It's never simple. It's never obvious. There's never an obvious choice. And that's because political debates come out of real, shared concerns among lots of people. If there are not lots of people who share a concern, that viewpoint does not rise to the level of being a political debate. Political has to do with those things that define the populace, the poll, the people, those things that rise to the level of political debate come to that point because there are many people who share a particular concern. Dismissing any political position is dismissing those concerns, dismissing those people. At its core, every political debate is a discussion about whether to punish or pardon. That's very essential to know. No matter the political conversation, right and left, the issue on the table is always, do we punish or do we pardon? How much do we punish? How much do we pardon? How much do we combine punishment and pardon? How much do these work together? Should we only punish? Should we only pardon? That is a very difficult question. And it's very difficult no matter the issue on table. It's so important to see that those movements that favor punishment, tend to favor punishment, historically have been termed right-wing, and those movements that tend to favor pardon historically have been termed left-wing. And these two directions operate in tension with one another, arguing for punishment and pardon back and forth. How much should we punish? How much should we pardon? And both sides tend to believe that their particular approach would lead to the greatest resolution for the world's problems. Take immigration as an issue, for example, since our boy Jeff brought it up. What do you have on the right When it comes to the immigration issue, you have lobbying, you have arguing for punishment. That those people who have crossed a border illegally, for whatever reason, ought to be punished for breaking the law in that way. And there is an underlying belief that if those people are punished, it will disincentivize future illegal behavior and incentivize future legal behavior. That's the argument from the right. The argument from the left is an argument for pardon. That even though these people perhaps have broken a law and entered into the country illegally, we ought to pardon them for that mistake because that will resolve this terrible tragedy of people, millions of people living here in our country as second-class people, being dehumanized, being treated as something less than human. And that we ought to pardon them for the sake of human decency. Invite them out of the shadows. And so there you have it. Political debate between punishment and pardon. What if one of these ideologies got its way completely? What if the punishment crowd got its way completely? What if we dropped the hammer on people who have entered into this country illegally without any reservation, without any opportunity for pardon, without any consideration of context, without looking, for example, at whether someone was fleeing oppression or faced murder or some atrocity of some kind? What if we heartlessly brought it down on people according to the law, no matter their situation? Would anyone want that? What if the other side got its way completely? What if pardon got its way completely? What if we were simply rid of our borders entirely? What if we simply welcomed in the tens and hundreds of millions of people that were seeking a better life in our country? Does anyone want that? Anyone think that's a good idea? Yeah, actually, a lot of people do. (laughs) There are a lot of people who argue for these extreme positions, and it is the tension between those two extreme positions that keeps us historically in a fairly safe place. As long as no one gets their way, we tend to be okay. Historically, when the argument for punishment or the argument for pardon has won too many successive victories, when either the right or the left strings together too many victories and begins to get its way entirely, dreadful, murderous consequences ensue. You think of left-wing regimes like Stalin or, more recently, Zimbabwe or Venezuela. There's chaos, there's ruin. You think of right-wing regimes, Nazism. Whether it's left or right, when the certain political ideology gets its way entirely, the bodies stack up by the millions. And so historically, that tension between these two political ideologies has kept more people Alive. So what? How are we as Christians to engage in this political fray? In this conversation between pardon and punishment? What does it mean to be a Christian in the here and now? Well, what it means to be a Christian, of course, is that we define our lives by the life of Christ. That we seek to live out by way of the Spirit the finished life of Christ, that we step into his finished life and walk in his steps with him. So how did Jesus navigate politics? How did Jesus navigate the political issues and controversial issues of his time? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus lived in a rather charged political climate we think our climate is politically charged we always massively overestimate the extremity of our current moment how many times have you heard in your short lives some shorter than others that this upcoming election is the most important election in the history of our nation it has never been true in our lives and likely never will be Jesus lived in a time when the Roman Empire had swept in through Palestine and claimed control over that region such that the nation state of Israel now no longer had power over their own destiny. They had to follow Roman laws. They had to pay Roman taxes. To give you some context, can you imagine if tomorrow Russia swept into the United States, took over the American government, imposed Russian laws, demanded that we pay Russian tax? Do you suppose that the political climate in our country would become more or less charged in such a scenario? Slightly more than our current state. I think it is fair to say that Jesus lived in a time when the political climate was more charged than the political climate of our day. And Jesus had enemies. Specifically, the Jewish religious leaders, they wanted to be rid of Jesus. They wanted to discredit him because what he was teaching was threatening their system of power. It was threatening their system of influence. And so they set out to trap Jesus Politically, Not much has changed. This is still a favorite game of those who would want to win. They set out to get Jesus to show his political cards. And so they sent their minions to question Jesus publicly. These religious leaders, these Pharisees, sent their minions. They didn't go themselves. And they asked their minions to question Jesus on one of the most controversial issues of the day, whether Jews should pay taxes to Rome. Remember, Rome had come in, taken over Palestine. They were charging a tax, taxing the Jews oppressively, and they came to question Jesus on this issue, and they began by setting him up. They buttered him up when they first began to question Jesus on this issue. They said, Jesus, we know that you are a godly teacher. You're a person who cares about the truth, You're a person who's going to tell it like it is. You're a person who's going to bring what's true, bring the word of God, no matter what the consequences may be, no matter what the appearances may be, no matter what people may think of you. You're going to answer straight. And then they pose the question, Jesus, should the Jews pay taxes to Caesar, to the Roman emperor? How do you suppose Jesus responded or would respond to a question like that, a direct question about a controversial political matter in his time? If he were to simply say yes, obey the Romans, then he would in effect be abandoning the Jewish state. He would be abandoning the promises of God to establish a nation for the people of Israel. He'd be letting go of thousands of years of hope of what was the longing of the Jewish heart and the promise of the Jewish God. But if he were to say no, if he were to say don't pay taxes to Caesar, then he would be stepping into open revolution against the empire. He would be declaring war with Rome. And so you see Jesus is caught between punishment and And pardon. Do we punish these Roman oppressors for their misdeeds against us by revolting against them, perhaps going to war against them? Or do we pardon these Roman oppressors and simply try to get along, perhaps at the great expense of our own national identity? Well, of course, Jesus didn't answer directly. Instead, he asked that someone produced for him a denarius, the basic coin of Roman currency, on which the image of the emperor Caesar was imprinted. And someone produced said coin. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. <laughs> the religious leaders and all the people that were gathered there, the scriptures tell us they marveled at this answer. Because you can see what Jesus is saying. He's saying whomever has stamped his image onto something lays claim To that thing. Whomever has stamped his image onto something has a right to ownership of that thing. Caesar had stamped his image onto the denarius. Jesus is saying these coins belong to Caesar. But by implication, the Jews would have known well what Jesus here left unsaid. And we as Christians know it well, too, that our God and Father has stamped his image onto us, that we belong to him. Jesus is, in effect, articulating a kind of dual citizenship. The religious leaders were seeking for him to claim a single loyalty. Are you loyal to Rome, or are you loyal to to the purposes of Yahweh? Are you loyal to the nation-state of Israel? Are you loyal to God? Jesus claims a dual citizenship. He says he is loyal to Rome regarding those things that Rome owns and that he is loyal to God regarding those things that God owns. He sets a dual citizenship and establishes it according to priority. Rome can have my money. God gets my life. Rome can have my finances. God owns my being. He owns my soul. Rome can tell me what to do. God defines who I am. He articulates a loyalty to both government and God, but there is a clear priority to that loyalty. God defines him. Not long after this, when Jesus was standing before the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate in the trial for his life, Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus makes clear here in this public trial which citizenship defines him, which citizenship takes precedent, when his dual citizenship collides, when the values of his loyalty to Rome and the values of his loyalty to God collide, the kingdom of God reigns. This is where his true identity lies. Let me ask all of you, when you enter into the political fray of our time, if you dare to enter into the political fray of our time, when you get into conversations about immigration policy or upcoming elections, and I know some of you do because you get into those conversations with me, <clears throat> stop it, <laughs> do you engage only as a citizen of these kingdoms of the earth? Do you engage only as a citizen of this kingdom, of the kingdom of our nation, or do you engage as a dual citizen whose primary and definitive loyalty is to God? Here's why I ask, because the conversation between punishment and pardon, that's not going anywhere. That fundamental political conversation, people have been having that conversation since there was more than one of us, since there was two of us, since the birth of politics, punishment or pardon. And it's a worthy conversation. It's actually a conversation that needs to be engaged in. It's in that conversation that each society works out how it's going to balance punishment and pardon, how they can live in tension with one another. It's as we engage in that conversation that we avoid the dreadful consequences of one or the other of those ideologies stringing too many victories together and the murderous consequences that ensue. We actually need every thoughtful person diving into that dialogue. And historically in this country, tragically, at times, the church, Christians, have pulled out of that conversation. We have thought perhaps that that conversation about punishment and pardon, that it was too messy, too dirty, that it was too spoiled, and so we've tried to remain above it all or outside it all, We've tried to express only our loyalty to the kingdom of God, forfeiting our loyalty to the kingdoms of this earth, and this has had tragic consequences. The societies that Christians were a part of, when they have done this, have suffered as a result of it. We need to engage in these conversations. The reason we pull out, of course, is because we don't want the discomfort of disagreement. Who wants that? And we don't want the embarrassment of saying the wrong thing. It's terribly embarrassing to say the wrong thing. Political conversations are extremely complex, and every one of us is a bit dim, honestly. None of us is clever enough to solve the political conversations of our time. Every one of us have blind spots. If we enter into this conversation, I promise you we will be embarrassed. We will be exposed as ignorant. Every single one of us is ignorant, which is why it's such a terrible tragedy to shame people for ignorance. We're all ignorant. It's actually our collective ignorance colliding together that produces anything of political value. If you are an ignorant person, you are qualified for political conversation and dialogue. You're needed in it. We need each other in it that's the way we ensure that no one gets their way. And so when Christians have pulled out, it's been to the great dismay of their societies. But of all people in the world, we who believe, we who believe are most qualified to experience the discomfort and the embarrassment of engaging in political conversation. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. Because we have a dual citizenship. We have another identity. We have an identity in the kingdom of God. We are the beloved children of God. We are sure of where we stand in our being. And so as we enter into these conversations, as we enter into these dialogues, as we face this discomfort, as we face this embarrassment, we need not have that cause us to run for the hills. We know who we are in Christ. And so we can dive into this mess without... Fear, God has defined us. Our ability to articulate our positions and be clever in a room does not. We don't have to be afraid of discomfort or embarrassment. What's more, we don't have to put our hope in political ideology. Apart from belief in spirit, apart from understanding that there is another kingdom, that there's a governing and defining kingdom that takes priority over the kingdoms of this earth, we have nothing but to put our hope in the kingdoms of this earth. Nothing but to put our hope in these kingdom ideologies. We, as believers who know God, we don't put our hope in political ideology because neither punishment nor pardon, nor some clever combination of those two things can actually solve any of the problems of our time or any time. Those political solutions cannot heal the brokenness of our world. It is God alone who will set things right. It is God alone who can bring great healing. You know what that means? It means we don't have to sell ourselves to a particular position. We don't have to attach ourselves to a political ideology. We don't have to render ourselves the diapers of our age. We're free. We're free from all of that desperate attempt to win. That means we can acknowledge when truth comes out of the mouth of any person, even the most despicable political opponent. We can acknowledge when lies come out of the mouth of any person, even our greatest allies, even ourselves. We can lose face. We can lose standing. We can pursue the truth without fear of winning or losing. We can know that we stand assured in the comfort and sure love of God. And that no matter what happens in the political landscape, even if things turn horribly wrong, even if the right or left strings together enough victories to bring terrible tyranny. God still reigns. The kingdom of God stands. He will set all things right, and he will be faithful to us. We can run into the political conversation and die, because God raises the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sweat. We thank you for the heat of life and for being in it with us. We thank you that you did not keep yourself apart from that, but that you dove into the mess for the Lord Jesus who navigated these issues before us and who invites us into his life after him. Father, teach us your ways as we engage with each other. Pray for the people in this room who hold impassioned disagreements with one another, that they would learn to love one another learn to hear one another, learn to understand the concerns of one another, that we would grow together collectively and learn together collectively and relate together collectively, that we'd be a light for the world that is full of hate and darkness. Lord, raise up your church to be a place where political conversation can happen in the context of being subservient to you. It's in you that we trust our entire lives. Amen.